So I thought I'd start out by telling you about a little experiment that a fellow philosopher, an American guy called Eric Schwitzgebel, uh, did. So he sent out questionnaires to professors of moral philosophy, ethicists, people who research and write about and teach about ethics. And he asked them all kinds of questions about what they would do in their personal life. If they found a bit of money lying on the ground, would they try to hand it back? If they could get away with shoplifting, would they do it? And the results shook the philosophical community of North America and, the, and Europe because the results showed that professors of moral philosophy and ethicists, people who specialize in ethics, were not only scoring average results, but were scoring below average results, which is slightly worrying. So what can we learn from that? Well, concepts and their knowledge are just not enough. So the German philosopher Kant famously talked about human knowledge, about the human epistemic faculties as made up of concepts and intuitions, where intuitions are perceptions or empirical data. And he told us that concepts without intuitions are empty and intuitions without concepts are blind. So we need concepts to guide us in our attempts to navigate the world. But we also need intuitions to fill the concepts up with content. So without the real-life, real-world experiences concepts remain empty and abstract. And I think that if we think about words, concepts like quality, dignity, autonomy, they remain exactly that. They remain black marks on white paper unless we choose to infuse them with content. And we do that not only by using the thoughtfulness and analytic capacities we have, but also by using our hearts and intuitions and common sense. When we think about quality and what that might mean to patients, I thought I would contrast what was just being said by actually thinking about low-grade insults that take place in uh, healthcare. It takes place everywhere, but I think I'm unlikely to experience a low-grade insult when I walk into my local spa, and it's much more likely to happen in big places, places big institutions where pressures and processes are governed or appear to be governed or are experienced as governed by uh, uh, things that are bigger than, than the individual. So people, I think, in healthcare and also in universities, people often say, well, I'm just one person, I'm just a lowly lecturer or nurse, and what I say doesn't really count and I can't really change anything. But in fact, if we think about the causes of these low-grade insults, they often take place because of an individual's decision to look away, to ignore, to not return somebody's smile, to be grumpy, to answer a question with insufficient information, to let somebody wait another 10 or 20 minutes even though you know they've been fasting or are dying to go to the loo. I think in my experience as a patient, it was actually these low-grade insults that made the most difference to me, that caught me in the most inappropriate times and that left a very sour taste in my, in my mouth after experiencing them. So we've got these two parts of the equation. We've got the one thought that concepts on their own can't do all the work and glossy brochures and, and directives are part of the solution but not the, the full solution. So the, the top to bottom thinking I think doesn't really address the thing I'm aiming at to, to, to express here, which is that the, the things that happen at the lowest level, at the sort of most 
common interface. You know, when you ask a porter for directions, how they reply to you, for example, when you're trying to find, I don't know, the x-ray department. That is the kind of thing that patients experience and remember uh, very, very... So what, what can we do about it? I think one thing that I've spoken here about before is something I call epistemic justice. I'm thinking back to the words that have just been spoken about patients not being heard and complaints not being taken seriously and people raising concerns being dismissed. And these are all true things, but I think they need sort of an extra twist in order to make apparent what is so wrong about all these situations. And what is wrong isn't just that people who speak aren't taken seriously or people who speak and complain aren't being heard, but that the words that people say in specific contexts, in specific situations, don't carry the epistemic weight, don't have the testimonial force, if you like, that they ought to have. And one obvious solution to this problem is to think about what a situation of equal or peer-based dialogue might look like. So hierarchies exist. Again, I don't think healthcare or the NHS are unique in that respect. But they can also be overcome. And it always depends on the interlocutor's position in the conversation and the ways in which they choose to listen or not to listen. And I thought I would, I would use one example that happened to me only yesterday to illustrate this point. What do I mean by this uh, uh, notion of epistemic injustice? So I use oxygen to get about, and I have to order that on the telephone, and I phone a call centre. And I have to remember to order it three days before I need the delivery, which is a tricky thing in itself. On Wednesday, I forgot to call, so I called up first thing on Thursday morning and said, I'm really sorry I forgot to call yesterday. Can I have the delivery for Friday? And the person in the call centre said, you know, computer says no. You'll only get it on Tuesday. And I said, oh, really? What am I supposed to do until Tuesday then? She didn't have a clue. And I said, well, do you know, I have to do this every week. And out of every 52 weeks I do it, in one of them I'll be bound to forget to call at the right time. Does that ring true to you? <coughs> and, and she said nothing. I think she was terrified because I think they're under very strict instructions to follow very specific kind of protocols of conversation. But she didn't say anything. And that is an example of an epistemic injustice because I think what I said was a reasonable thing to say, a reasonable request to be made to somebody who says, I'm going to run your life for you for the next five days. But she didn't respond to that. Now, I wasn't particularly offended because I knew how to get around that, how to arrange for the oxygen delivery to take place. But it very easily could have not been the case. And I think the bottom line is that when you receive health care, you are to an extent more vulnerable to the sense that we all share anyway, which is that we're all in the hands of other people to an extent, right? So we all relied on the uh, people who served the delicious lunch out there half an hour ago not to poison our food, right? We, we take that for granted. We all rely on other people to obey the, the rules of traffic, <clears throat> drive on the left and stop in red lights and so on. But when we think about situations of healthcare, the profound sense of vulnerability and dependence is exacerbated to a very, very extreme extent, right? So if I don't have oxygen, I can't leave the house. 
So when I put that to her, she said, well, you've got an oxygen concentrator, which is a static machine people have at home. And I said, so do you expect me to stay at home for four days now? And again, it didn't seem to register with her. And is this kind of blunt conversational mechanisms that I think do a lot of damage. And I think it's easy to do on the phone, it's less easy to do face-to-face, but I've seen plenty of these things happening face-to-face. So I've seen people turn away when actually what they should have done is just put a hand on someone's shoulder or offer them a glass of water, said, sit down, I'll hold your hand. And the beauty of all of these things is that they don't cost any money. And I think I'll close by going back to Kant, who I mentioned at the beginning. So now I've kind of set you up to have no faith in moral philosophy, <laughs> but I'll still offer one, one thought from, from Kant, who, um, whose moral formulation was very simple. He said, we should always treat other people as an end, never as a means. So when we think about the situation of healthcare and when we think about the complex financial calculations, logistical computations, the enormity of the system, the enormity of the technical complexity of running something like the NHS. We can still bear in mind that there is a kernel of truth in what Kant said, that people shouldn't be thought of as beds or spaces in in someone's schedule or any kind of backlog or whatever other metaphors you folks use. People are always an end. They're always something that is to be appreciated for its own sake and not to be harnessed in the service of, of something else. And I think our society in many ways has kind of forgotten that. But if there's just one thing I can leave you with, it is this thought that one way to think about quality is to take this Kantian maxim to always treat people and think of them as an end and never as a means, as a very fundamental and very simple way to consider what to do next. So I will say if people want to know what patients want to need, they can just ask them. And I think I've heard lots of people talking about questionnaires and iPads and laptops and ways of gleaning information and so on. But one thing that's also very helpful is to stop people in the corridor and say, how are you today? How have things been going? What has happened to you since you've walked in here? People have been friendly, they've been smiling, they've been helpful. And how have these kinds of, again, so in the same way that I talked about low-grade insults. I think there can also be low-grade signals of human goodwill that are extremely easy to, to implement and I don't think would require any additional, additional resources. So the kindness of strangers is, I think, something that can come very cheaply and very intuitively to, to all of us and, and I call on everyone to make it their own, their own maxim as well. Thank you.